Hi there, it's Marcus, and before we get started, here's a quick important word from our sponsor. Are you ready to show your commitment to endodontics? Join the more than 8,000 professionals who help make the AAE the world's premier endodontic association. Being a member and a member of the AAE provides you with access to tools and education that can enhance your clinical skills and practice success while connecting you with thousands of like-minded colleagues. Join today. Visit aae.org backslash join. Welcome to Endo Voices, brought to you by the American Association of Endodontists, the show where we are advancing the art and science of endodontics and promoting the highest standards of patient care with today's top experts in the field. Now, here's your host, Dr. Marcus D. Johnson. Welcome back to another episode of Endo Voices. My name is Marcus Johnson. I'm your host for this season two, and we're really having some interesting topics on these upcoming episodes. And today uh, doesn't disappoint as well. We have Dr. Mitsu Kohli, uh, who is a, uh, a diplomat, of course, of the American Board of Endodontics and is also the clinical associate professor of endodontics and the director of the Continuing Education and International Scholar Program at UPenn. Uh, she's going to be joining us today and really having some lively discussion, probably we're more structured like a, a Q&A about bioceramics and, and different uh, usage of that material and how it's revolutionized endodontics today and actually where do we see that going. So welcome, Dr. Coley. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. And, you know, I hope you're doing well, uh, you know, post-pandemic and, uh, you know, just welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marcus. It's a pleasure and honor to be here. Thank you for inviting me to come and speak about this topic. Yeah, most definitely. Um, you know, you've been, have established yourself as a, um, an expert regarding these uh, bioceramics and you, you have some great points. So we wanted to bring you on and just have some discussion and share with our listeners, um, you know, just new developments and techniques and, and how we're using bioceramics today and, and how it has changed since the early 90s when we first kind of were introduced to what we all know as, as MTA and just how that had such a strong impact on endodontics. So I, I guess maybe it's good to start there. Um, maybe just kind of give us a definition or if you want to a little background about yourself and then also just kind of the, the modern definition of what bioceramic means specifically in endodontics today. Yeah, so um, I mean uh, about myself, I come from University of Penn. Uh, you know, we've we've been working with bioceramics clinically as well as in terms of research uh, for a fairly long period of time, as far back as MTA itself. Done a tremendous amount of research independent of industry at the department, and then obviously, you know, followed up with the newer uh, bioceramic materials or the trisilicate cements, as they uh, are called now, right. um, in these days as well. But if you go to the history of bioceramics, I would say a bioceramic material is a very, very huge group of materials. And the history goes back as far as 1960s to the medical world. It goes back to uh, a gentleman called Dr. Larry Hench, who was a physicist in Florida. And he's the one who actually invented the first bioceramic material, which was called and is still called bioglass. So when you say bioceramics, you're actually dealing with any or every material that's available out there that is going to replace traumatized, broken, 
inflamed portions of the human body with this foreign material, so to say. But this material is very biocompatible and very unique in that respect. Wow. You know, I really appreciate you giving us that history on how actually the origins, you know, start within medicine and then have transitioned into dentistry. And, um, you know, we do see that, I guess, when we're talking about live tissue, if we were to really place a definition on uh, bioceramic, it's just those materials that are in direct contact. That's correct? That with, is correct. With, with the live tissues. And like you said, obviously, uh, biocompatible and even have some osteoinductive and conductive properties as well. Maybe we can kind of talk about that distinction just for some of the listeners who are, you know, maybe an introduction into bioceramics. Yeah. So to go back as to what you were saying, you know, the introduction to it, uh, the reason this first bioceramic material was made by Dr. Larry Hench was to be able to provide a material to the medical world to replace uh, arms and legs that were lost during the war and of these soldiers who were coming back to the U.S. And they needed a material which would not be rejected by the body uh, when it is placed in contact with live tissue. So that was the purpose of that first bioglass. Such a noble purpose. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. He was actually inspired by a colonel uh, that he was traveling with in a bus to a conference. And he was going on about a different material that he was taught making at that time for semiconductors. And that's when this army colonel actually asked him, could you come up with a material that the body would withstand? And that's the story that led to the bioglass invention. Okay. So if you were to look at the current bioceramics in terms of, as you said, you know, what are the classifications, we have bioinert bioceramics. So these are materials that you would replace, for example, joints with. Mm. which like zirconia, which doesn't do anything in the body. It replaces the, uh, the bone structure that you're trying to replace without causing inflammation or any other reaction in the body. So that's your bioinert material. The material that you and I deal with in endo is actually a bioactive material, which is going to create an environment which is osteoconductive, osteogenic, is extremely biocompatible. So those are the bioactive materials that we deal with in endodontics. And that's a, a popular buzz term nowadays is the, the bioactivity or those bioactive materials that you mentioned. So thank you for clarifying that up. Are there any other categories, I guess, uh, outside of the bioinert and the bioresorbable? Or... Yeah, so the bio, bioinert is obviously the zirconia, but bioactive are actually two types. One is bioresorbable that would be resorbed away by the body and replaced with bone. Uh, oh, and I those see. are, you know, the grafting materials that are used. They're mostly not silicate, but phosphate, mm-hmm. more of calcium phosphate kind of materials. And what we use in endo is a biostable material, which once placed in the body is not going to go anywhere. It becomes part of the body. Okay. Well, thank you for clarifying, uh, clarifying that up and really just uh, hitting on those salient points. So you've kind of brought us into the history and how they have evolved over time and I guess it's nice to say that now in 2020, when we look, when we first were introduced into MTA and we're talking about these uh, bioactive materials now, uh, what is the main uh, point that we celebrate about the materials today that we really didn't like, or not really didn't like, but weren't as fond of when we first had MTA introduced into the field of endodontics? Yeah, so, you know, I, I think I would love for you 
to talk to Dr. Torabinajad or if I could talk to him. <laughs> I'd find out how did he come up with this? I know. I, I mean, know. what brought him to think that Portland cement could out be used? Out of all used, things. Yeah, of all the things. <laughs> And I mean, I've heard stories like he's got a brother in construction or something like that. You never but know. You never know. But the point is, I think the my my assumption here, and I could be obviously way off, is that the material was or Portland cement was used for its sealability. That would be, you know, that would be the only reason I would think somebody would want to put Portland cement in a tooth. But I think the biocompatibility, the the reaction that it creates in the body and how biocompatible it is, uh, probably is the, the stronger suit of the material. So our evolution from MTA to the new materials is really keeping those two properties. So keeping the biocompatibility uh, and the sealability of the material and removing to the negatives. So the negatives were mostly coming from the way Portland cement is manufactured. So there are too many metals like arsenic, mm. uh, chromium. Um, what are the other dangerous metals you can think of? So that, a lot of impurities, I guess, maybe we could say. A lot of impurities. Okay. Because, you know, how if you've ever been to a Portland factory, there's one actually right here next to my house in the Poconos. I'll get out of here. There you go. They go to the quarries and they dig up stone, right? And they're looking for stone rich in lime, which is calcium oxide, uh, aluminum oxide, and silica oxide. And they take these stones and then they heat them up in presence of carbon dioxide at very high temperatures. And then they have powder that material, mix it with gypsum, and that's your Portland cement. But because these stones are taken from under the sea, over the mountains, in Greece they are you know, mined from sedimentary rock, you have all these impurities in there. So now the newer bioceramics are actually pre- created in a laboratory with just the oxides that we want without the impurities. So I think that's one of the significant differences in what we have now versus what we had with gray MTA. Amazing. And, and you know, this is why I love this forum so much, uh, just for communication and conversation. Um, you just opened my eyes and I'm sure the listeners too will just, uh, you know, just be amazed that we learned so much, you know, we're immersed within endodontics every day and we're using the materials. Oh, you know, ask my assistant, uh, you know, pass me the MTA or, you know, the, the bioactive material that I'm going to use for maybe restoring a, uh, perf repair or something like that. But to understand and know the history as to how it all evolved is really quite amazing. So thank you for taking us down that, that uh, trip down hi- history. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, memory lane. Yeah, I think just the way a material comes to a person's mind amazes me. Yeah. You know, I'm not an inventor. I sit around thinking, okay, something will come to me which will change the <laughs> world. But it hasn't happened. <laughs> One so day. kudos to people like Torbinajad and, you know, doctor, other doctors in our field who've come up with these inventions, which has made our life easier. So much easier. Yeah, and I think we should talk about that. I mean, you, you really hinted on a few points. Uh, the sealability, uh, biocompatibility, and even to the point we, that raises the question about, um, you know, obturation and, and how do we see these bioceramics, what is their role now as we talk about obturation? And then we can maybe even get into some perf repair and, of course, apical surgery and retro plugs and just really its utility uh, within endodontics, if you can kind of speak to that a little bit. Uh, yeah, so I, I think um, as far as the new bioceramics are concerned, 
the major change that has happened is its availability in forms of sealer. Mm-hmm. So the uses of MTA were perf repair, surgery, you know, uh, anywhere they needed a putty form where we could plug a hole and create a seal and have a biocompatible environment is what we were using MTA for. Um, and the laboratory-made trisilicate cements that are available to us now provide the same uh, features by, provided, by, by it being provided in a putty form. But another technological advancement that has happened uh, from MTA to the newer ceramics is that uh, the particle size has reduced. So, right, if you, pull, if you ask your assistant to give you MTA, what do you get? You get that sand, right? The yes. Gray. So that was microparticles. Now, because these trisilicate cements are being made in laboratory, the particle size has been reduced to nanoparticles. Mm. So now, you know, you can provide this material in a form where it would flow without having to add additives, which would change the property of the material itself. So I think that's, that's the main major change, that now we have MTA, or a trisilicate cement available to us in pure form as a sealer with these newer materials. Wow. Well, I mean, it really sounds like, you know, this nano, I guess, if you will, technology, these nanoparticles does improve the, you know, the aspects of, of the filling material. And so as we remove more impurities, I guess if we continue along that path, that's how we kind of expect this to evolve over time. Like, what are we expecting to see in the future with these products, with the bioactive materials? Is it just that they'll become less impure, uh, you know, increase sealability? You know, where are we kind of going with this as we uh, have more advancements in the laboratory? Yeah, so I I, I think the uh, additives that are going to be added to these materials in by various manufacturers are going to change uh, the properties for the better. The dye and trisilicates, that was the main portion of MTA. They were about 65-70% in MTA. Now they're almost 90% in, you know, the newer bioceramic materials. But I think they, for example, in septodont uh, biodentin, they add calcium phosphate. They add uh, a liquid with calcium chloride, which changes the setting time of the material. In the medical field, they add things like strontium to make the material harder. So I think that's what we're going to see with our materials. As and when we do research and we point out to the manufacturers, okay, we don't like the long setting or short setting, or we don't like the mechanical properties, or I don't like the flow, I would prefer it to be, uh, or the clinicians would prefer it to be be better. I think that's where we will see the changes Uh, But the basic material, I think, is going to remain the same. The additives are going to change so that we can change the physical properties for the better. Wow, interesting. And and if I can just uh, divert a little bit and kind of just shape the conversation a little bit differently, how do you find the handling of a lot of these materials? Uh, You know, just kind of from a technical aspect, uh, when it's in your own hands. Uh, You know, sometimes when I'm using the putty, I do like the fact that I can't place it, more or less it will stay where I uh, you know, put it, but sometimes tamping it down, for instance, from managing a immature apis or, you know, a case like that where the root isn't completely developed and maybe trying to do some sort of uh, apex, you know, some of these new advanced techniques to actually promote, you know, continued dentin development or dentin wall thickness. Just in your hands, can you share a little bit about that? How do you like the handling of these uh, materials? 
so uh, it, the material in its putty form, uh, whichever company you want to pick up, I mean, uh, at Penn we use a lot of uh, endosequence material. So the material in its uh, putty form handles just like uh, IRM or Cavit would. Uh, so as long as when you take it out of the of the box and you find it to be the same consistency as uh, IRM or uh, Cavit, it's easy to use. However, the environment that you're using it in has to be relatively dry. You can't have a lot of fluid or uh, tissue fluid or your irrigant in that area because that's going to change the consistency of the material. And now it makes it harder to pack or have a nice clean surface with it. If it seems to harden a little bit, especially the endo sequence, let's say it's been sitting in your uh, box for a long period of time and it, now it's a little bit harder, uh, the recommendation is to use a little bit of sealer and make it to the right consistency when you use it. Uh, as for the sealer itself, I find it to be a nice creamy uh, consistency adequate to use as, as a sealer in the root canal system. Some materials, for example, uh, the biodentin putty works really well. The sealer is a little bit more coarse, so if you've ever used that and mixed the powder and liquid, that's how it's dispensed. The material has a little bit of coarseness to it, so that that seems to be a little bit of a disadvantage, and I think if uh, Septodont would look into it, maybe going smaller in particle size would help with the flowability of the sealer itself. Great points, and you know, I have actually used uh, the biodentine a few times, and I do like the handling properties. It's just sometimes I feel they give you so much per vial. Oh, yeah. And that actually <laughs> oftentimes the, the areas that we're trying to manage don't require as much um, of that material. But it, what I do like is that when you take a radiograph of that, it's going to show up as the same opacity really as dentin. And That's so true. sometimes when you're making those perf repairs uh, and you refer send that back to your referring doctor, they're amazed at you know, just how uh, – beautiful and consistent the filling looks when you actually repair those perforations and things of that nature. That is true. That's yeah. absolutely true. At EPP, we are your partners in success. By affiliating with Premier Endodontic Practices, Endodontic Practice Partners aims to elevate the standard of care and believes in letting our practitioners focus on their core clinical responsibilities. Our mission is clear, to provide business expertise and resources that empower our partner practices and amplify growth opportunities. How do we achieve this? By seamlessly integrating. We're not just colleagues, but a community working towards a common goal. The value of being part of a larger entity benefits all. We are growing in selective states to maximize the opportunities and impact for our partners. With 100 doctors and 65 practices, collective success drives individual achievements. Together, we lead the way. Visit endodonicpracticepartners.com to learn more. And meet us in person at AAE24 in L.A. And that kind of brings me to another question. When we're looking at the different materials, if there were to be a hierarchy, say, you know, amalgam or, you know, super EBA, MTA, and of course now the bioactive cements, can you just kind of talk about that and how are we still using amalgam in certain areas or would you just say that we need to do away with that completely? Uh, Super EBA, is there still a position for that within endodontics or should we more or less just focus on incorporating the bioactive cements into our, our practice? So I, I, I would say these materials had a place in the root and filling part of endodontics in terms of surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, amalgam, I would say, should definitely be uh, avoided, thrown out if possible. Right. Um, 
super EBA. That is controversial in the sense that if you look at our clinical data, if you look at the clinical studies that are done, which are comparing super EBA with MTA as a root and filling material, the clinical success is similar. It is slightly less than MTA, but it is not statistically significantly so. However, I think as clinicians, you and I are hoping, yes, we get clinical success, but at the, time, at the same time, we are hoping for histological success. We are hoping yes. for the best histological response. So I think keeping that in mind, I would, I would stick to bioactive material, whether it be MTA or any of the newer uh, trisilicate cements, and not be using super EBA. That being said, if you were to just go by the clinical success, we don't seem to have too much of a difference uh, between the use of those two materials. Okay. And kind of since we're focusing on the clinical aspect, let's touch on uh, the solubility. Um, you know, there's been some questions about the solubility of these sealers uh, and, and whether they dissolve away over time. Can you kind of just speak to that point and, and, and share some thoughts on that? Okay. So this this is my assessment of this material, obviously. The concerns with solubility have been brought up in two ways. One are the in vitro studies that have been published, and uh, there is talk about solubility of this material ranging from anywhere to 2 to 20% in those in vitro studies. The other concern that has been brought out clinically by some clinicians is that they've gone back into the root canal system and found the material to have set, uh, not have set or be still soupy. Yes. So we need to address both of them a little bit differently. The in vitro studies uh, that are done, they are done according to an ADA guideline of 6876, I think. Um, and that's a guideline. It's an ISO standards, which are produced by ADA. And you basically put your material through these series of tests, which are prescribed by this ISO guideline. The problem is that these these guidelines, I don't think are meant for bioactive materials. I don't think they considered bioactivity of the material. So when they test solubility, you know how they test the solubility? They actually make cylinders of this material, they soak it in water for X number of days, and then they take it out of water. And then instead of just drying and weighing it, and then looking at the difference of weight before it went into the water, after it went into the water, you know, that would deduce the solubility. In these studies, they actually take that material after soaking it in water and desiccate it to 110 degrees centigrade in an oven. And now they measure what is the mass left. And obviously, those numbers are pretty high because you've desiccated the material. This is a hydrophilic material with a gelation reaction that's holding the material together. Yeah. So I think this is not the way to test solubility for a trisilicate cement. I think you change the properties dramatically. In the body, we are not going to heat it to 110 degrees. We're going to stay at 37 degrees. So that's why I think the in vitro studies have these wide range of numbers, depending on how high they heat it up or if they don't heat it up, and then those numbers are there. Interesting to know the process of how they test that. And I would never guess that solubility was, there had so much variance with how they uh, measure that and quantify that. So thank you for enlightening us about that. 
just to address the second part, because some people will say I've gone in there and found it to be soupy, (laughs) that it's not set. And that's got to do with how much fluid was there in the area or uh, let's say your irrigant or body tissue fluid was there in the area when you place this material. So if if you place this material in too much liquid, it is going to change the setting time. The setting time might even quadruple if you leave it in a mushy environment. So yes, it likes water. Yes, it's hydrophilic, but it's not supposed to be changing the uh, liquid to powder powder ratio, so to say. So you cannot really place this material in a very, very wet environment and expect it to set at the same time that's given on the package. It's going to take much, much longer to set. And that's a good caveat. I think we have to factor in, you know, the operator in these situations and, and how that does influence the material and setting time versus it not setting when they were to go back in there. So thank you for highlighting that as well. And since we're kind of talking about if you were to go back in into a lesion or say we, we found that maybe it didn't heal properly, let's just kind of talk about the pH level and, you know, in these periapical lesions, how does that maybe affect the sealing ability of these materials or just the overall efficacy of them? That's a good point and uh, actually a very good question. And I've kind of researched that a lot and connected that with medicine. Mm. So once again, uh, the effect of pH on MTA is known that it's going to decrease the mechanical properties of MTA. And again, it comes from the in vitro studies. But let's, let's look at what happens in the human body. The pH of a chronic lesion is actually alkaline. A pH of an acute lesion is acidic. And there is a study on our our Indo literature which has looked at pH of uh, acute abscesses. And that pH is around 6, anywhere between 5.9 to 6.3 as per that study. So if you look at uh, skin injuries, for example, skin wounds, they want the wound to be acidic because acidic environment promotes healing. The acidity of the tissue will kill bacteria. So now the, now there's less bio burden. Uh, the acidity will create more oxygenation of the tissue. The acidity will actually change the protease environment, activity of the tissue, and it actually promotes healing. So in burn patients, they change dressings so that the wound is actually acidic so the healing happens. Now let's take that information down to the periapical area. Mm-hmm. So let's, the, let's say the peripical area now has started to heal, it, so it is going to become acidic. Or you placed MTA in the presence of an active lesion. It is placed in an active acidic environment. That acidity is about, as per humans, anywhere, let's say, 5.5 to 6.5. And that acidic environment remains only for a short period of time as the body starts to heal the body goes back to its neutral pH. So the studies, the in vitro studies that have been done that suggest that pH is bad for these materials have been done in anywhere from 4.4 to 5.4 pH where, wow. take, where they take this material and just soak it in that pH for days. Very acidic, yeah. So now that doesn't correlate to what happens in the human body. And there is one beautifully done study, and it's actually in the JOE, where... They took MTA, placed it in an acidic environment of 5.4, which is, you know, what happens in a wound healing Mm -hmm. for about four days. 
and then change the pH back to 7.4 for the next 30 days. And the deleterious effect of the acid on MTA actually reversed and MTA became solid in terms of all its physical properties after 30 days of being in that 7.4 pH. So the change in the pH was actually to the benefit of the, the hardening of the MTA? Yeah, so it went back, it, it weakened with the acidic pH, but then, then strengthened with the, uh, with the neutral pH. Now, this is, this is a, a new dynamic that we stumbled on. So knowing this information and the influence of uh, pH on the setting of these materials, how can we use that to properly gauge maybe when's the optimum time to go in there and, uh, you know, treat these surgeries? Yeah, so I, I would say, I mean, uh, surgeries, I would say, because we're removing most of the granulation tissue and now we're going to have a blood clot against this material. Uh, I would say uh, maybe in an obturation situation where you're obturating a tooth, you, don't, mm-hmm. you might not want to obturate it in its acute painful stage uh, because that's an acidic environment. Maybe place calcium hydroxide, have the patient come back with no symptoms. When the symptoms are gone, the environment is no more acidic in nature. Right, And even if you do place it in an acidic environment, at least this one in vitro study, uh, study suggests that once the pH becomes neutral, the material will re-strengthen over a period of time. So uh, I think as clinicians, you and I do the same thing. We don't obturate till the patient is asymptomatic. That That's is the a, goal. That yeah. is the goal. Yeah, indeed. Wow, this is a good conversation. You've you really brought so much to light. I'm really enjoying this. And since we... You know, we're talking about obturation, and I think it makes sense, but yeah, if, if the uh, tooth is still in an acidic state due to the infection and the acute symptoms, by all means, I do like to put in calcium hydroxide just to get that added benefit. And of course, we all know that high alkaline is uh, going to help, uh, you know, bring down some of that inflammation. But let's talk about uh, single cone techniques, or I guess the new idea of a, a sealer-based obturation and how we're moving away from I guess the older techniques or practices of really just trying to put as much gutta percha within that space and as little sealer as possible to now where we're saying that the single cone technique is actually something that we can rely on. And, um, you know, we see that we're seeing a lot of positive results with that. Yeah, so um, I think this is the first time we have a material available to us which is conducive to be used in a single cone technique. A uh, single cone technique has a very negative connotation to it. You know, it definitely does. <laughs> you can see our community cringe when you say there's just one gutta percha cone in there. Especially now with everyone using CBCT too as well. Yeah, yeah. 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 But, but, you know, the problem was not the gutta percha. The problem was the sealer that we used to use before. AH plus, if you leave large volumes of AH plus in the root canal system while setting it, it's going to contract. It's going to create gaps. Calcium. So that resin, correct, kind of exactly. shrinks. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and if you had a calcium hydroxide-based sealer, if you leave large amount of sealer in there, calcium hydroxide sealers are actually soluble. So over a period of time, they will start to resorb uh, and dissolve. Mm. So now we have a material which doesn't have the solubility. And, uh, you know, there's enough literature now, clinical literature to show you that it doesn't. Um, and it actually expands. So it has a 0.01 or 2% expansion. So you can fill the entire canal with sealer 
and you don't even need a gutta percha point, and that seal is not going anywhere once it sets. The concern is how do you predictably fill the entire canal with sealer that you that can't? That is the question, yes. Predictability. So we, <laughs> exactly. Like working length control, right? How do you make sure it doesn't extrude out? So that's why we use that gutta percha cone. So I don't think what, what, you, what you just said is absolutely accurate. It is not re- really a single cone technique. It's mm-hmm. a sealer-based obturation. So mm-hmm. the cone is just a conduit in the middle helping you spread the sealer, allowing you to do retreatment at some point. But basically, the material that is sealing the root canal system is the sealer and not the gutta percha. Great points. And, you know, I like the fact that you're, you're a researcher and educator. And, of course, you are, uh, you know, wet-handed clinician. And would you say that in your practice, this is something that you've kind of moved more towards adopting? Is that sealer-based obturation? And if so... You know how how are you receiving that? Is is you liking the uh, you know the outcome on on your uh, cases? Yeah, so I switched to sealer uh, based obturation two thousand end of two thousand fourteen early two thousand fifteen, mm-hmm. and now I use exclusively uh, just the sealer and the cone. Uh, Pen switched about six months before I did, based on uh, our research that was being done at the department at that point in time, and my office is. Uh, my clinical practice, my private office, has a very good follow-up rate. We are very particular about getting our patients back, especially those with lesions, to figure out with, whether these lesions healed, whether we need to change you know, our, our way of doing things. And so far in the last four or five years, the results are you know, comparable to H+, maybe even better in terms of healing ability of those lesions. I know I'm putting a bioactive and a biocompatible material in there that makes me feel good in terms of the histological outcome uh, that might be happening there. Uh, and so it has PEN. I mean, we, with residents, you see retreatments and surgeries of similar cases because of patients not following through with permanent restorations, etc. You know, we've had pretty good experience with these materials, uh, both in private practice as well as at the university level. Very promising. And, you know, there was a point that I I really liked that, you know, you're humble as a clinician. And, uh, you know, I think it's so important for us as endodontists to always actively practice recalling our patients uh, because every case is a success unless you see which ones you bring back and and how you can modify and change to, you know, ultimately deliver better high-quality patient care. So kudos to you and your team for actively recalling patients and seeing those follow-ups. Oh, thank you. Yeah, You learn a lot from your mistakes, actually. That's where I learn everything. <laughs> and of course, from having guests like you who are just amazingly brilliant, uh, you know, share with us about uh, things like the bioceramics and uh, just the new techniques and when we're moving. So I, I think this was uh, very well done. I really appreciate you taking the time, Dr. Coley. And, you know, it had been some time since I've last seen you. I was last, I, I probably ran into each other at a few AAE meetings, but before that, it was nice to be in your presence down at Penn when I came down to take the uh, surgery course a few years ago. And, uh, you know, I hope that things are going to continue to improve for everyone around the country and around the world as we deal with the recovery from uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, definitely look forward to seeing you at AAE in the future, hopefully in Atlanta. Yes, I look forward to it. It uh, brought back memories when, of when you were with us for the surgery course. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. A few days and 
I still have great memories. And, you know, I've taken a lot of those skills and implemented to my practice, and I felt so much more confident as a clinician and actually performing those apicots. So. Oh, well, that's the nicest compliment you can give the course enough. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, it's very true. So this has been great. I mean, if there's any other thing that you'd like to just kind of uh, point to or, you know, any comments you want to share before we uh, let you go, just want to let you know, I definitely appreciate you taking the time. And you are definitely a friend of the Indo Voices podcast. So uh, many blessings and thank you. Thank you. No, I, I would just say uh, stick up with a good work. Having pod- I heard that this was your one-year anniversary with uh, the Indo Voices. Oh, thank you. Yes. So congratulations. Made a year. Yeah. yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's a new endeavor. And, uh, you know, the staff at the AAE, they're just so uh, supportive. And, and we have just amazing people who go hard to work. You know, they work so hard every day. And really support endodontics and, uh, you know, the advancement of, of our profession and our future, essentially. So big sure. shouts to them as well. Yeah, yeah. It's a new technology needed for the new generation. This is how the new generation learns through voice and, and screens, you know, so provide the education. Yeah, distance learning. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and COVID has really, you know, stamped that as this is the new reality of learning. So glad we were ahead of the, the ball on that one. But other than that, thanks so much for your time, Doc. And, you know, you be well and be safe. And we'll look forward to having you on again or, you know, seeing you in person, okay? Sure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Marcus. All the best. You got it. Me too. Thanks so much. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Indo Voices. Uh, We'll look forward to seeing you in the future. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Endo Voices. Don't forget to subscribe so you can catch all of our upcoming episodes covering the hottest topics in endodontics. As always, we welcome your questions, comments, and ideas for future show topics and guests. Email us at endovoices at aae.org and visit aae.org for more information on the American Association of Endodontists. Hey, before you go, I'd like to give a special thanks to our sponsor. Visit the AAE online store and discover a robust selection of educational patient brochures, flip charts, speaker kits, and Colleagues for Excellence newsletters, all developed and created by the AAE for practitioners like you. Indo Voices listeners can now enjoy 20% off the AAE online store. Visit aae.org backslash shop and apply promo code SHOPVOICES20 at checkout. S-H-O-P-V-O-I-C-E-S-2-0, 20% off your purchase. Some limitations and exclusions do apply.